Today's show is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. We'll hear more from them later on in the show. Welcome back to the Ironic Protestant Podcast, a supposedly bi-weekly show where we strive for the knowledge of God, his word, and his world through the lens of the classical and confessional Protestant tradition. Um, we're joined today but with uh, Matthew and Josh. Jordan, Jordan's out. He He's fixing his car, apparently, but we'll give him an out for that. And yeah. we have quite the esteemed guest today. Josh, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, our guest is Nathan Johnson, and he is professor of moral philosophy and trivium at New College Franklin. Um, how long have you been teaching there, Nathan? I'm going into my third year. Okay, going into your third year. Um, Nathan holds his BA from, where did you get your bachelor's? <laughs> yeah, that's okay, Bryan College. Okay, Bryan College, and then you got two, two masters from RTS, correct? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, yeah. And then you got your master's from St. John's. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he's here to talk to us today about New College Franklin. We're really, really excited to have you. And you're the assistant dean of academics there as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Which uh, RTS campus did you go to? I went to RTS Charlotte. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great place. Uh, I'd recommend it for sure. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. If you're awesome. thinking about seminaries, I don't know if that's an approved one at RBC, but uh, it's a pretty good one. Yeah. You're also working in your PhD, correct? Right? Yeah, I am. I, I'm at uh, Faulkner University uh, getting a PhD in humanities with a concentration in literature. Okay, nice. So, uh, How's that process going? Uh, it's good. You know, um, considering that I've been in school since I was five, uh, I'm getting a little bit, uh, a little bit weary of uh, all the paper writing and things. Um, my wife, is excited for me to finish. Yeah. Uh, we, I'll have a little bit more family time, but um, I'm loving it. Yeah, I, I really enjoy um, getting to teach and study lots of different subjects. Y'all talked about how you're eclectic in your tastes on things, and I'm very eclectic in my tastes on things. So um, yeah. it's been fun. Actually, I feel like I've kind of come full circle. So my BA was in literature, and then I focused on theology and philosophy for a while and so now i'm coming full circle to get my phd in nice and you have two golden retrievers correct yes although one passed away just recently. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry to hear that my english bulldog just passed away a few weeks ago as well so. oh really I yeah, so dog, that sucks yeah it does yeah but, um so josh you know last episode you you decided you want us to talk about what we're reading first because you just have to let the world know you know what you're up to so could you yeah. tell us what you're reading what you're up to yeah so i don't know if i announced it on the podcast but jordan and i we got a job at a christian classical school called highlands latin school in winter park and as a faculty we're going to begin reading this book uh, i don't know how to pronounce i think it's Parnassus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah it's a new apology for greek and latin um by Tracy Lee Simmons. There's a forward by one of my favorites. If you know me in person, you know I like William F. Buckley. Um, but that's what I'm that's what I'm reading. Matthew, what have you been up to? Um, what I'm reading right now. 
So I was reading Moeller's book on the will, but I decided to take a little break from that because every time I'd read it, I have to spend like, like 30 minutes to an hour just to get like a few pages done. So, you know, I decided to like, you know, relax a little bit. And so I picked this amazing book up. Uh, I will build my church selected writings on church polity, baptism and the Sabbath by Thomas Witherow. And it's been really good so far. His um, section on church government was very, uh, very well written to me and I think very well argued because I hadn't done a ton of studying into ecclesiology yet just like little little bits of eclectic studying here and there and kind of being like oh I'm just Presbyterian right now because it's a close church and I'm more broadly reformed but this one is really making a, a good case so I'm really enjoying that read and I'm just starting the section on baptism in that book and then I'm also still reading through this haven't been very consistent till we have faces by C.S. Lewis uh i gotta finish this eventually but i'm over halfway through so yeah those are the two that i'm reading and then obviously i have my other eclectic readings i do uh, just for fun you know we use the word eclectic in the beginning of this now i can't stop saying it so yeah eclectic. uh nathan what are you reading right now oh that's a great question i am uh in the middle of a biography of graham green uh so i'm doing my dissertation on um t.s Eliot, graham green and even Waugh. And uh, they're kind of, uh, there are three uh, English fellows. Well, T.S. Eliot's technically American, but mm -hmm. he uh, then became an uh, English citizen, a British citizen. Three British fellows who uh, became Christians in the early uh, 20th century and their writings, particularly their literary writings, um, very much target the disillusion of uh, Western civilization because mm -hmm. of modernism. And then kind of giving a, a new kind of Christian vision. Uh, so I've been really fascinated by those guys. So I'm, I'm reading a lot of those three right now. But what do you recommend from T.S. Eliot to start with? Because I have a friend who he's reading through a little book right now and he was telling me I got to get into him. So I'm like, okay, I'll eventually get into him. But I have a T.S. Eliot guy here right now. So I might as well ask, what would you recommend I start with? Ooh, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think T.S. Eliot's work is best understood when you read his poetry chronologically. Um, because it all builds on each other and he reuses the same um, images and motifs throughout his poetry. So, you know, the, the pinnacle is the four quartets, which is kind of his uh, final kind of Christian um, response to a lot of his earlier poetry. But you got to start um, with um, Proofrock and Other Observations, which is his first book of poetry. Um, and, then, and then work from that to the wasteland and uh, then to the hollow man. Um, but uh, in conjunction, I think it's good to read uh, Russell Kirk's book, um, T.S. Eliot's uh, Moral Imagination in the 20th, 20th Century. Uh, so Russell Kirk, I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, but he was a uh, 20th century Christian conservative uh, political philosopher, uh, also friends of T.S. Eliot. And it's the best critical biography uh, around. So it, it does a really good job of helping you understand what he's doing in his poetry, how it fits into his biography. Um, so I would read those in conjunction. Just jumping into T.S. Eliot's poetry can be really difficult. He's kind of like a impressionist painter, but for poetry. And so lots of images, lots of ideas, they're not uh, directly connected with each other, um, can be kind of difficult. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for Looking that. Yeah, my uh, my copy of the conservative mind right now because you mentioned Russell Kirk. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What are you reading, Jonathan? Uh, 
it's it's so it's so bad. So I'm I'm finishing up my independent study this summer um, on scholastic metaphysics and natural law, um, and so the final paper that I've been assigned is to respond to um, Jeffrey D. Johnson's Saving Natural Law from Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Yeah. And man, I've, it's so the, the book's only 80 pages long, but I read 10 pages and I have to set it down just because like <clears throat> I have to I have to process just how 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 bad it is. So I've been I've been I've been reading through that. Um part of me kind of feels like it's not worth responding to because it doesn't seem like a like a great critique. Um, but it's the assignment, so I'm gonna respond to it. And then I've been finishing up uh, book one of uh, Summa Contra Gentilis by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and so it's just, it's fun reading them side by side. And then just reading Johnson, just, he he loves to make the claim that Thomas is this pantheist. And um, he keeps on saying it. They never quotes Thomas of where there's any pantheism in Thomas. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's what I've been reading. Um, I, I'm finishing up. I'm writing that paper uh, over this next week to end the defense day before the semester starts. So, um, I, I I just really wish the paper wasn't having to respond to this book just because it's going to be um, yeah, it's going to be a frustrating week. But I don't know who said it, but someone like Vivian mentioned, I think it was Joseph Minnick, that you know when you're angry about something, it tends to get the writing done quicker. So it's it's probably it's probably a good thing. That's that's what we're reading. That's why I do so good in all my super liberal college classes. Hey, y'all, it's Jonathan. Just want to give a quick word from our sponsor, Davenant Hall. Davenant Hall's upcoming Michael Mass term, or their fall term for you Presbyterians out there, uh, begins September 26th and runs through December 10th. Uh, I would just like to spotlight one course they're offering uh, this semester. Um, the course is called Reform Scholasticism. It's Introduction to Reform Scholasticism, being taught by Michael Lynch. Now, if you listen to our podcast at all, you, you know we mention the Reformed Scholastics and the Scholastic tradition a lot. So if you'd like to get more into what's going on with Reformed Scholasticism, were the Scholast- Reformed Scholastics faithful uh, to the earlier reforms and uh, the earlier thinkers of the Reformation, I highly suggest you check out this class. Uh, Dr. Lynch really knows what he is talking about. Uh, the class uh, will be offered via Zoom, uh, two hours per week of live instruction. Uh, and, but if you want to enroll just to listen to the class, you can always just listen to the conversation later. The cost to audit is $225 and runs September 26th through December 10th. Um, and if reform scholasticism is not your interest, they're offering a, a, quite a few other classes on topics like C.S. Lewis, apologetics, the Reformed Confessions, England history, and more. So if you're interested in checking out any of those things out, I highly suggest you go over to davenethall.com. Um, and see if there's anything there you're interested in taking. We highly suggest uh, you take class this semester. So from ancient languages to in-depth studies of great thinkers, Davenant Hall is a refounding of the ancient university for the digital frontier. Now back to the show. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Which you won't find at New Franklin College, apparently. So yeah, uh, yeah look at that. Yeah, so let's, let me give you a softball question. Like what's going on at New Franklin College? What is it? How'd y'all start? Like what's going on? What's the goal? What's... The, the big picture, the, the meta narrative, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So it's actually New College Franklin. Not yes, New yeah. College. Yeah. Oh, my um, yeah, that's all right. So yeah, so uh, New College started in 2009. Um, and kind of the vision was um, a, a few different things. So one, there's kind of a gap 
if you look at the classical education movement, um, rightly so, it's kind of started from the ground up. So um, homeschooling, uh, classical schools focused on, um, you know, early grades, middle school, high school, but what about college? Um, and there's not a whole lot of, particularly in 2009, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, classical Christian um, colleges out there. So part of it was just, what would it look like to um, start a thoroughly classical Christian liberal arts college? Um, but to do it, you know, this is going to sound pretentious, but to do it right, because there are wrong ways to do it. And I think if you're kind of in the classical education movement, um, like any movement, there are various strands and there are kind of intramural uh, disagreements about what does it even mean to be classical? What does it even mean? What does the liberal arts even mean? What does it mean to be Christian classical liberal arts, right? And so um, the college was started under a conviction that if you're going to do it right, you actually need to build it off of the medieval model. Okay, so uh, this, the medieval education was the pinnacle and really uh, the start of true Christian classical liberal arts education. So even the seven liberal arts, that was solidified in uh, the Middle Ages. Um, and so uh, the focus became, how do we create a college that thoroughly and thoughtfully totally integrates the language arts, that'd be the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric, uh, the mathematical arts, that'd be the quadrivium, you know, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy, uh, philosophy, um, literature, history. Uh, how do we integrate all of those with the keen vision toward um, the knowledge of God and the worship of God, theology? So in the medieval model, theology was the queen of the sciences. Uh, it ruled the court. It was the beginning. It was the end. And so how do we create a fully integrated college um, course of study uh, with the beginning and end as theology, but the latter up to the knowledge of God being the seven liberal arts um, and a robust understanding of um, human ideas. And so New College was born. Uh, we've been uh, going for 13 years now. We have a student body of a robust 45. Wow which is uh, actually kind of ideal. Um, so another part of one of the kind of commitments that we have is we want a small faculty to student ratio. We want every faculty member to know every student. We want discipleship relationships. Uh, we want small class sizes to facilitate conversations. So no class is gonna be larger than 15. Um, we do not uh, lecture very much, uh, which is one way that we're different from the medieval model because uh, there was obviously a lot of lecturing going on in the Middle Ages because most people didn't have books. So uh, you would, uh, lectio means to read, right? So lectures used to be essentially reading uh, books. Well, now students can read books on their own so we can use class time less for lecturing and more for robust critical engagement. And, but you can only do that in a small class size. And so, uh, small classes, um, professors try to teach multiple disciplines um, because we want our students to be um, conversant in all the disciplines. Why shouldn't the faculty be conversant in the disciplines too? So for example, I teach a theology class. I also teach a couple moral philosophy classes, but I also teach arithmetic and I teach uh, a writing class too. Um, so there's kind of a push toward uh, faculty and students together engaging in uh, great texts. Um, almost all of the reading are primary texts uh, from uh, across all of human history. Um, 
and we read the books, we have conversations, we ask questions, and uh, the goal is the knowledge and worship of God. Uh, and the last thing I'll say just about the meta, meta structure is that worship really does um, uh, create the, the scaffolding for the whole community. So we have a daily prayer service. It's not, uh, it's not a chapel service, it's a prayer service. So it's about 20 minutes. We do um, Gregorian plain song. We do uh, uh, readings from the Anglican tradition um, and we do scripture reading and then we sing a psalm. And we do that um, every day at 10 a.m. And that becomes kind of the bedrock for the whole community. So that's who we are. And uh, it's been going great. Uh, The last few years, more people have become aware of what we're doing. We're getting more interest, which is really exciting. Um, We don't really want to expand too much more. Um, You know, the the big question is, do we want 50 students uh, or do we want 100 students? But we don't want more than 100, that's for sure. And we want to keep it small, tight, close community. Um, Oh, and I'll mention, I didn't actually mention, we're in Franklin, Tennessee. That's where we are, near Nashville. Great place. I guess a question that I have um, for, because I was classically educated. I went to a Roman Catholic school. I think I was talking to you about it, Nathan. Um, Classically educated, you know, the classical languages were, were taught, were, I was taught the classical languages as a child. And then being from New York City, Um, In my later years, I was thrusted into like the high school system and most of my, most of my family, they went through the high school system, went through, I have a lot of family who went into higher ed, you know, have, you know, family who worked at Columbia, you know, had prestigious titles, but obviously there's a, what Columbia was and what Columbia is, there's a different pedagogical goal. Um, And just speaking about the modern university in general and the modern, the modern way of doing education it's more of an assembly line, right? It's like, what, if you cannot get a degree unless it, unless you do something with it, right? So how is, I know that New College Franklin is different in that, in that the liberal arts and classical education is not necessarily, obviously, and if we look at the statistics, those people who are classically trained, they perform better at, you know, let's say a trade job or just, you know, any vocation than someone who, let's say, goes to some higher ed. But what is the difference between, you know, New College Franklin being a classical college, Christian classical college, and its orientation and goal being towards the formation of the soul, as you mentioned, the worship aspect, right? So it's, there's the worship aspect, the spiritual aspect, and also the natural aspect. So it's accommodating to the natural body and also the spiritual body. Um, but how is that different from the modern way of doing education that, you know, you go to school, you know, kind of vocationalism. It's like you go to school so you can do something. So the efficient, like you would say that the final cause of New College Franklin is for the glory of God and to further the knowledge of God. But in a modern university, the final cause would be so that you can work for like Verizon or T-Mobile or something like that. Right. <laughs> how, would, uh, how would New College Franklin be different and why? If you can make a defense for why you should, why educators should think of education like this, why teachers should think of educations like this, um, what, would, what would be your defense? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I think this might be a long answer, but I want to talk about it theoretically and also practically. Okay, yeah. so theoretically, um, I don't know if y'all have read uh, Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver. Um, uh, but one of the things that he said, this is back in, uh, I think, the 30s or 40s, um, was uh, the, the modern shift uh, you see is from defining human as homo sapien, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking things to homo favor, doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is picked up by um, Joseph Pieper or Joseph Pieper uh, oh. in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, um, in Tomb of the World, a lot of his works where he picks up the same thing where there's been this shift, shift to define man by what he does um, practically then rather than uh, his ultimate end being um, knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a Christian, we can say a worshipful knowledge, right? Um, not just um, knowledge about the world, but ultimately knowledge of God. We are what distinguishes us from the rest of creation is our ability to know. And, um, and if you just look at the tenor of scripture, obviously there is importance uh, placed on what you do, right? If a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Um, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it all your might, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the emphasis is on the worship of God, the knowledge of God, um, the imitation of God. And uh, what does Psalm say? I have never seen a righteous man begging for bread. Mm. Right? Um, so there's this sense in which when you think about education, right, when you think about forming a human being, you have to start with that, that base level. Who are we? We are homo sapiens. Um, we are thinking things, and so we need to form the mind. Uh, we are also uh, embodied souls, so we need to form the soul. Um, but then we also need to form the body, and we need to um, help people learn how to um, actually find work to do uh, and provide for their family, and I'll get to that in a second. But you have to start with the right end. You have to start with the right foundation. The beginning and the end have to be there. Um, and, you know, y'all talked about prolegomena uh, early on in the podcast. Uh, if you have the wrong starting place, um, you're going to really go off in the wrong direction. And so I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of modern educations. The starting place is wrong. Yeah. Um, it's a more imminentized, um, you know, think about Charles Taylor's imminent frame, right? Um, well, what matters in an imminent frame? Well, it matters that you can survive, um, that you can get a job, and then you can uh, avoid pain, pursue pleasure, live out your days as comfortably as possible, and then die. That's what matters. Well, if that's, if that's how you define a good life, and that's how you define a human being, then sure, uh, it makes sense that college would be for job training, um, particularly trying to get you a job that'll pay you the most so you can have most pleasure, the least pain, live out your days, and die. <laughs> um, but of course, as Christians, we know that is not at all uh, the way the world is. That's not at all what our calling is as human beings. And so when you think about education uh, from our perspective, uh, we wanna make sure that we have people who are not just trained to do a certain task from nine to five, Monday through Friday, uh, and then have uh, no purpose uh, and no ability to do anything else during any of those other hours much less being able to do that job nine to five in a way that glorifies God. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to be um, a good approach. So we want, we want people who are whole human beings, um, people who uh, define their life um, based on membership into the body of Christ, based on um, service to God's kingdom, and based on the knowledge and worship of God. And we think that our approach uh, actually does that really well. Now, that's the theoretical side. Um, we also have the practical side. And I'll touch on that briefly, and then we can kind of go off in different avenues. But I don't think that the modern universities actually are in touch with the modern world. So this might be a, a bold claim. But 
the way that the market works is not the way it worked even 20 or 30 years ago. And I don't think that they're fully catching up to the way the markets work. Um, because you have um, a, a marketplace now where a uh, bachelor's degree is just basically required um, for most jobs, um, those bachelor's degrees aren't actually worth very much. And because the market's changing so quickly, they're not they're not really even worth that much in training people to do the certain jobs that they're applying to. So if you look at statistics, most people get a job in a field that has nothing to do with their major. And even if they do get a job in the field that has to do with their major, um, they're gonna have to do a lot of on the job training. And so what happens with most employers nowadays is the bachelor's degree is simply a check mark. And then what they look for is, do you have certain work experience or can you be trained on this job? Right. So, uh, for example, my wife, who uh, works at an equine hospital, she works with horses uh, as a, uh, a vet assistant, she didn't have any uh, vet background, uh, but she did have a background uh, training in grooming horses. Um, but she applied to the job anyway, and she said, I don't have a vet background at all. And they said, OK, well, um, are you a good person? Are you a hard worker? Uh, are you trustworthy? Uh, are you easy to get along with? And can you uh, learn what we're going to teach you? Because we're just going to teach you everything you need to do anyway. She's like, yep, yeah, I can do all those things. Like, Great, you're hired. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what they're looking for, right? Like that's practically speaking, that's what employers are looking for. And um, as Josh said, typically people who are classically educated fit the bill, right? They, they are able to learn quickly. They're able to adapt quickly. Um, they're good people to work with because they're actually human beings. Um, they... Uh, they bring a level of joy to their work because they have a purpose outside of their work. Um, they're good people. Um, employers understand the importance of ethics in the workplace. Um, they understand the importance of um, uh, being able to treat other people um, like you would want to be treated. Um, and that's, those are just things that Christian classical education forms in people. So just even from a practical standpoint, um, getting a degree from say a classical college um, or a Christian liberal arts college, um, you're actually going to be more prepared in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. That was a, ahead, okay. Yeah. That was a, that was good stuff right there. I actually, I just thought of two questions for you. One of them is very light and brief. The other one might take us on a little bit of a rabbit trail. First okay. question though, you have a gym. Do we have a gym? Yeah. No, not yet. Okay. Yeah. I, I, the only reason I asked was because I had a little bit of a, Today, people are graduating at my university. And so I would try to go to the gym like right before this happened. And apparently the gym wasn't open because of that. So I was a little bit salty about that. And I figured I might, you know, we're interviewing a guy who works at a college, might as well ask if they have a gym or not. Um, but anyways, <laughs> my next question that I thought of is, um, so there's this one man on Twitter who is quite notorious for stirring, stirring the pot a little bit, um, especially in, in on issues in regard to race. His name is Bradley Mason, very large proponent of critical race theory and things of that nature. And I found this tweet the other day and I thought, I just saw this now and he's not a fan of classical education. I just wanna know how you would respond to this type of claim. He says, quote, I mean, why don't they just call it classical white education? I know why, whiteness is normed and therefore unmarked. So in this uh, system of CRT with all these white power dynamics and things of that nature, do you think, like, how would you respond to someone who claims that classical education is like 
you know, a proponent of whiteness or whatever, would you even respond to that or take that seriously? I just, I don't even know if I have like a solid question. I just want to get like gauge your reaction to a claim like that, you know? Or John, can, I, can, I, can I build on your question? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I think, I think it just in regards to like the idea of recovering like the Western tradition in general, right? Mm -hmm. Because Western, I think in the modern mind is inherently white, white, right? And so, um, so how would you respond to the idea that this recovery of the Western project and the medieval project um, has some type of like ethnocentrism to it of um, the, the white man's way of doing life? Because, um, you know, a lot of people all times talk about West, the Western tradition as being maybe superior to other traditions. Right. So mm. what would you what would you respond to to that and how it relates to classical education? What are y'all what y'all are doing at New College? Yeah, great. Let's just dive in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's a, that's a very relevant question, too, because I've gotten those questions before. And when I went to St. John's, you know, St. John's does Western tradition, great books. They're not Christian, but um, they get that question all the time. Um, I guess I have several different uh, responses to that. So one, I think I have to um, critique the, the question. So the question take, has some assumptions built into mm -hmm. it. So um, one is that Western uh, equals white mm -hmm. or that Western is even something that can be clearly defined. So if you think mm -hmm. about um, who, who are the kind of the foundational figures in quote unquote Western culture, a lot of them are from the Middle East or North Africa or around the Mediterranean. Now, in my mind, that's not, clearly white um you know so <laughs> like if you look at uh even my my reading list for moral philosophy too which is ancient um uh philosophy and literature and things and we we, we read augustine well augustine was uh, an african and uh, if you're going to find just one if you're going to pick one uh theologian who has had um uh, from the first century or first millennia of um, after Christ. If you pick one theologian who's had the greatest influence on the Western tradition, it's a North African, right? So, um, so just to, to, just to clarify that when we, when we talk about white and we talk about Western, uh, those are, you have to make those categories very, very broad. Yeah. Um, so what we're really talking about is, um, a tradition that for the most part uh, has not been influenced by um, uh, India um, or um, China and further East. Um, but pretty much the rest of, you know, from North Africa, Mediterranean, um, uh, Russia, Middle East, um, into, you know, what we now call Europe and the Americas. Um, I mean, that's a fairly large, um, swath there um, um yeah and i'll say that some of the global south uh, would not you know probably go into that western tradition category too so yeah. that's just to clarify the question before i kind of dive into the other side but josh you want to jump in there yeah i think uh so the davenant they had their fundraising dinner um at uh at, at bedside at beside a country club in Maryland and Joshua Mitchell, who's a professor at Georgetown, he came out and sp spoke on identity politics. He studied under Alan Bloom, um, for those who know him. So I think, I, and this is a lot of stuff I've derived from Mitchell, a lot of stuff that I've derived from Soul. And I think a lot of the, the binaries that people 
and like especially I'm from New York City so I'm like I know all these guys like when I was in public high school I was the first we were the first class to receive the aftermath of the 1619 project to those who are familiar with it but the binaries that um, I think it's 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 very limiting. For example, like the only the only way, and I think uh, Nathan, you you hinted at this. Like, there's an assumption in that question, right? It, I think I think there's there's a metaphysical assumption as well. It's that that black people are like subspecies, and white people are super species, right? So it's like most for most, and this is and this is, and I think this is reflective of just the world in general, especially you know post 1960. The chronology for an Africa for a modern African American man doesn't begin with Adam and Eve, right? It's like, you know, those people are European. You know, I can't find, you know, I can't find any truth, good and beauty in Bach, so I'm going to listen to Jay Z. But like, if you have the metaphysical assumption that the history of the world is the history of rational creatures, right, thinking things, and we are same, we are the same in substance. Therefore, right, I can look to, let's say, I can look to Bach and the European tradition and say, yeah, these are, these are, I can derive truth, goodness, and beauty from these figures and not have to make this artificial bifurcation that, yeah, because they're not black, I can't learn from them. It's like, that's not, you're making a metaphysical assumption that, that they're different things. No, they're not tertium quids. They're not, they're just rational creatures. And if they're rational creatures, their history is my history. But with the 1619 project and what critical race scholars are trying to implement is this bifurcation of history. It's 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 a metaphysical assumption. You have black history and white. I just I don't I don't I don't find those those binaries helpful. I would much rather talk about the history of rational creatures because what what makes me different from you know a white man? An accidental property. Not in where he has rationality, I have rationality. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a horse. He's not a horse, right? We're both the same thing. So I think the chronology that critical race theories, critical race theory scholars have, and just the fact that they want to pin the beginning of the, you know, the African-American race in the 1960s and everything, you know, so we have to learn from, you know, uh, Martin Luther, Malcolm X, Malcolm X, like these are the guys that we have to look to. These are our principles. And this is, this is, this is Western literature. It's just, it's not good. It's, it's really good. And, and it, it's, it's just increasing the divide that we see in modern politics, but I'll mm-hmm. let you go, Nathan. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, our shared humanity, our shared uh, uh, rational um, nature uh, is a much better starting point. And of course, I mean, you think about, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was class yeah. educated and he was very much a proponent of um, the, the Western tradition and, a lot of the um, uh, when this this is just a total side note, and then we'll we'll kind of focus more on this question. But um, a lot of the emancipated slaves, um, most of them, they very much viewed themselves as Americans and Westerners, and they were ready then to finally be you know full members of this place that they very much identified themselves with. Um, and yeah, really not until. Uh, very recently has there been this shift where it's like, that's actually not my country and that's not my culture and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But, but yeah, so then on kind of the theoretical side of like, why focus on the Western tradition now that we've kind of broadened it out? Oh, by the way, just as a side note, there's a great book, if anyone's interested, um, it's called the, uh, how Africa shaped the Christian mind. Uh, It's by uh, Thomas C. Oden, uh, O-D-E-N. 
How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, Rediscovering the African Seedbed of Western Christianity. I read that years ago. Um, I thought it was really great. Uh, not to uh, overemphasize um, that idea of um, you are defined by your place, um, your geographical place, or whatever. But it is just kind of clarifying for people who think that, oh, Christianity is some, somehow a European uh, religion or something like that. Uh, it's very much talks about the influence of African theologians um, in the early years. But, um, but I think there are two, two things that you just have to grapple with practically when you think about how do you uh, pick a, a course list or how do you um, uh, decide what ideas to focus on and what ideas not to focus on. Um, so one is the fact that you have to have some method of selection and some limiting principle. Um, and the, the, the underlying presupposition of the critique of a, uh, a Western tradition book list, uh, the underlying assumption is that the goal of um, education is to just be exposed to as diverse of viewpoints as you possibly can. That's the assumption, that that's the goal of education, to be exposed to as diverse a viewpoints as possibly can from every, every part of the globe, uh, every race. Um, and, and that's what education is, that's what's important. And of course, one of the reasons uh, why somebody might say that is because unless you're exposed to all these different diverse viewpoints, you create an imbalanced uh, power dynamic and um, you, you, know, you assert your uh, culture over other cultures, or you assume other cultures are somehow inferior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would challenge that assumption that that's the primary goal of education to just exposure. I don't think that's the primary goal of education. Secondly, um, when you talk about diversity of, um, of uh, reading, uh, diversity can be defined in a lot of different ways. So one could be diversity of culture, but another could be diversity of time. Right. And that's something that I find that a lot of uh, modern education completely fails at, uh, which is not really having much of a diversity of time. So, you know, if you look at our curriculum, uh, the time span of the works that we study um, stretches, you know, 4000 years. Um, well, that's that's a quite diverse time span. And uh, what that enables you to do uh, is to actually, I think, come in contact with a greater diversity of ideas. Um, because often it's time is, um, plays more of a factor uh, than um, say geography or culture. Now, obviously those are related, uh, that, that sort of thing. But so you have to pick something um, and uh, you have to pick some way of limiting your, your book list, you can't read everything. Um, but also there is, a, there is something important about uh, your, your starting place being learning uh, uh, who you are. And uh, if you're a Christian, um, then reading from the great Christian sources of the past um, is big priority, real big priority, right? So if I'm gonna have to choose between uh, reading Augustine or reading Confucius, well, I'm gonna read Augustine. Now, later, I have plenty of time in the rest of my life to read Confucius, but I want to make sure uh, that I read Augustine. And if that's the case for me, that should be the case for my students, too. Uh, so one is uh, focusing on the Christian tradition. And it just so happens that um, the gospel penetrated the uh, West quicker than it penetrated the East. 
Um, and so you have um, kind of Western Christianity um, just has a greater abundance of, of sources um, and writings. Um, obviously it did penetrate the East, but um, so that would be knowing who you are as a Christian uh, is looking at the Christian tradition, um, but then knowing who you are uh, as a Westerner, if we're, we're all you know, born in America, um, we are inheritors of the European tradition and a Greco-Roman tradition, um, a Middle Eastern tradition, a North African tradition. That's who, that's who we are. Um, then that's where you start. Uh, you have to start with the foundation of who you are, your own tradition. Uh, this, is just, this is just one of the big differences between uh, conservatism uh, as an ethos um, and say progressivism as an ethos. Now, the thing is, one of the fundamental assumptions of a place like New College or, or any sort of classical um, uh, education institution is the assumption that your education does not stop when you get your degree. Um, and so please, by all means, expand your reading list for the rest of your life. Uh, you need to, after you get that foundation of who you are in your tradition, build from that and read uh, all of the Eastern um, classics that you want and uh, explore uh, various ideas. Um, no one wants you to stop. Uh, after you get your diploma or only and exclusively read Western sources for the rest of your life. Um, but where do you start? What's your foundation? It's got to be with who you are. Yeah, I think to, to, build, to build on what you said, you mentioned the idea of how like a lot of modern education, let's just give you as much diverse information from anywhere and download it. And to me, that almost seems, I hate using this word because it's overused, but kind of has this like this Gnostic view of man where I am not a person defined by my place of origin um, or the nation I come from or the tradition I come from. I think I've noticed this, like you see a trend of young people that are returning to the tradition, but it involves them a lot of times kind of rejecting this, whatever tradition they inherited, right? Like I was, I grew up in like the Baptist non-denom world and didn't really receive a, um, a, an ecclesial tradition, right? Um, and so we're, we're, we're on the search for like, where do we ground ourselves? Right. And I think a lot of us end up in a historic Western church or tradition, but I think it's, it's similar with, with education, right. Realizing that, well, I'm a person in a certain place in a certain time from a certain tradition, and I owe a certain piety towards that tradition. And there yeah. seems to be, um, this this lack of piety this lack of understanding our place of origin and where we come from and how it defines like the words we use um i think it was really interesting uh you know jordan peterson you know people he's he's a big deal apparently and people love to listen to him and he's apparently so awesome and smart um i'm not i mean he's okay i guess but there's this thing he's come to realize recently he's talked about about how like well in the western world the bible is the precondition for truth now, what he, he he obviously doesn't mean that in a Vantillian, you know, sort sort of way. He's meaning it in the sense of like what we think in concepts and terms in line with like the Western tradition. So in order for us to talk and use words, we, we're there's an assumed vocabulary and meaning because of the tradition we come from, right? Um, and I think it's important to realize like whether we like it or not, like we're going to be influenced by the Western tradition because of where we're at in history. 
So it makes sense to be conscious of, of that rather than pretend like it doesn't exist and pretend like we're being unbiased and just downloading information. So I think, I think what you're saying is important, grounding ourselves in who we are as Christians and then who we are as, as Westerners. So I think, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, we need to return to a, a love for country and love for the true, the good, and the beautiful. It's, yeah, it's really, really sad. I mean, yeah. Yeah, agreed. And sorry, you go on, Nathan. You're the guest. <laughs> oh, well, I was just going to say real quick, and then Matthew, go. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, why do we need 18 years to be a part of a family, right? Um, uh, you know, and every family's imperfect, um, but it's part, it's in our design um, that the way that we grow is by having a exclusive, specific uh, family of origin. And you first learn who you are and what to do and what to believe uh, by learning what your family believes and who your family is. And obviously, um, the goal is not to uh, stay in that immediate family for the rest of your life and never uh, expand or make your own family, but that's where you begin. And that gives you the foundation by which then you can um, evaluate everything else. And I think the same thing goes for the Western tradition. That's your, that's your um, uh, philosophical family. That's your, uh, that's who you are. That's where you come from. Yeah. And um, what I was going to say is that like uh, Jonathan, you going on about this kind of made me think it's like, it's very difficult, you know, how like we don't really inherit like a deeply rooted tradition. So you kind of have to go and like, you know, find another, I guess, Western tradition. But like the thing is, is that you also do have to make sure you honor your father and mother, both your literal and your like, you know, forefathers of the faith and of the traditions you've inherited. And I think that right now, especially some coming out of certain forms of evangelicalism, even if you're like consciously making the decision to leave that behind, it is sometimes very hard to honor your upbringing, your past, because you might see like what you've inherited and what you are now, what you've now received is so much richer and deeper. And now you find roots that sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that the Baptist church you grew up in taught you how to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. The Baptist church you grew up in taught you about Adam and Eve and Moses and Noah and Jonah going in the mm-hmm. belly of the whale. It's hard to remember that Veggie Tales actually got you interested in the Bible a little bit, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And the, yeah. And these are things that sometimes it's difficult to do. And just in my, even in my own like personal life right now, just like I'm, I'm the way that I do things is growing very distant from how my immediate family does things and the way in which I like think and the way the way in which I want to live and have a certain lifestyle it's very different and so it's just like just this entire I think that's something our generation is having a face is we need to find a way to be able to detach from not being rooted while also still honoring what you've been brought up in because you can't become a traditionalist and totally despise what you were raised in like that's not really going to work out like totally. yeah you know you well, do have to have the, a certain amount of respect and honor while still throwing out the bad you know well there's something ironic about arguing for piety towards like the western tradition why you lack piety for like your own family yeah exactly your own, you know your own your own place of origin you know, yeah. you, you know what I mean? So it's just, just a little yeah. bit ironic. And that's, that's something that I like sometimes like struggle with. And I always ask God to help me um, to, you know, be able to show uh, honor for the, for my forefathers and just for my parents in general, my family. But uh, Jonathan, you look like you're about to say something. 
Well, yeah, back back in New College, though. So New College isn't just a classical college. You're also reformed. So, you know, part of the statement of faith is you'll hold to the Westminster Confession and then the three forms of unity. So how do you how do you think um, your identity as a reformed classical college affects the way you teach um, and um, your, your pedagogy as a school in your end? That's, that's a great question. And it is, uh, I think it's also, it's a difficult question because um, we, while we are reformed, uh, we also, I mean, similar to y'all or the Downen Institute, um, we see that there are still um, things to be gleaned from uh, pre-Protestant uh, Christianity. And so, you know, they read Thomas and um, they read a lot of theology before 1500s. Um, and so, you know, that's our heritage. Like we're saying, we need to have piety even toward, um, say, toward the Roman Catholic Church um, uh, pre, pre-Reformation. And so we are, so when some people hear that we're a reform school, what that sounds like is, um, oh, we think theology starts in 1517. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, and that's, of course, not the case. And the prayers that we use, um, you know, date all the way back to the early centuries of the church. Um, and like I said, we do Gregorian plain song um, in prayer every day. So uh, that doesn't sound very reformed. Um, uh, of course, it's not contrary to uh, yeah. either. Um, what I would say then is, um, yeah, a couple of ways that we're distinctively reformed. Uh, again, this might go back to your first episode, uh, Josh, talking about reformed prolegomena. Uh, there is just a difference in the way you go about education uh, if you're reformed as opposed to being Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Now, we do have a few Eastern Orthodox students, interestingly enough. Uh, we are getting our first Catholic student this fall. Wow. Um, and, uh, and that actually, I think that's good for everybody. I think it's good for them. I think it's good for the other students, too, because... Well, they know coming in that we're a reformed school. I teach freshman theology, um, theology seminar, and um, it's uh, reformed biblical and systematic theology. And so they, they know what they're getting. They got to memorize the shorter catechism. Uh, they read the confession, the whole confession. Um, but uh, you you see that the approaches are different. Um, approaches not just to scripture, but to um, other uh, uh, other texts even in other classes from Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, some for good, some for ill. But to, that is to say that where you begin as a Reformed Protestant um, does change a little bit of your, uh, your approach. Yeah. Um, now, I will say this. Some people also, when they hear Reformed Protestant uh, and they hear how our prolegomena affects the way we approach the texts, they hear Vantillianism. Um, and we're not Vantillian, um, though. I, I mean, I do think that they're praise uh, God. Always, <laughs> Dr. Filson. right? What I, yeah, yeah we yeah, do. Dr. Yeah. Filson teaches there. We yeah. love him, uh, and he he does um, excellent excellent work. Um, but there, of course, as you know, the, the debate often just descends into well, you don't really understand Vantillianism. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but what I'll say is this: uh, <laughs> uh, the Noetic effects of sin, uh, whatever they might be, affect your reading of scripture just as much as it affects your reading of nature. And so um, uh, you need, uh, we believe that the divine illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, helps us uh, understand scripture. It also helps us understand nature. Uh, and that reason is a gift uh, given by God 
um, to, to understand those things. And so we can pull from, um, I mean, we read so much Plato and Aristotle and uh, we love it. And uh, there are plenty of things wrong with it, obviously, because they're pagans. And as Augustine says, they're idolaters, um, but they're also very wise. And, yeah. and so we, we don't think that that is un-Protestant. Um, if you read a lot of the Protestant scholastics, um, I think they would have felt uh, very comfortable at a place like uh, yeah. Franklin. But it is it it does go against the grain of more uh, 20th century Protestant yeah. or, um, Reformed Protestantism. A, a follow up question would be: so as as a, as a, um, a a Reformed theological Reformed school reading uh, medieval sources in, in theology, how do y'all? Um, how do y'all teach the medievals and the medieval theologians like Aquinas um, in, in such a way? Uh, well, there seems to be a trend of like reformed folks. They, they end up reading medievals and they don't stay reformed. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you critically appropriate those sources in such a way that students know it's not a wholesale endorsement and, and retaining students in, in the reformed tradition? Because um, I've, I've had friends that. Um, that were reformed and then they started reading the medievals on uncritically and then they end up they end up in rome um so how do y'all do that um pedagogically Mm, yeah that's great um yeah as far as i know uh that hasn't happened yet but i can see how that could be a danger um i think i think there's probably a couple guardrails so one is that we we encourage our students to be really fully integrated into their church community um, and this isn't always the case, but I think for the most part, it should be um, that your, your church community um, and the, uh, the, yeah, the, the community that you're inter- integrated into and the community that you're worshiping with and the teaching that you're sitting under um, should have more um, influence and power in your life than any single book that you're reading on your own. And so you can... The, kind of the, the idea is that um, that provides an anchor by which you can then go out and you can read uh, Aquinas and um, glean a lot of, uh, I think, really deep and wise things, force you to ask some uncomfortable questions of yourself, um, but not jump ship just because you've read uh, one author um, on your own or, you know, at, at a school, but hopefully that then you you bring those questions back to your pastor or to one of your professors, and you you actually start working working through it within your worshiping community. So I think that that for the most part has been a tether for most students that it's raised questions, um, but it's not really moved them to totally say go to Rome because well you know Aquinas is pretty brilliant. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing, and then the other thing is. Um, well, there's a selection process, so it's not like they're reading the whole summa. Um, and our goal really isn't to um, have them, again, it's not about exposure. So it's not about like, well, you need to make sure that you read um, all, all the stuff from Thomas that Catholics believe and Protestants don't, so you can really understand Catholics. Um, that would be fine. That's not a bad approach. That's not really our approach. So we're not, we don't have them read. Um, a lot of the uh, parts of Aquinas that we would take issue with. Now they can read them on their own. Yeah. Um, but what we're interested in is we're interested in the truth. And so we're, 
we just pick the parts of Aquinas that are true. Um, and, you know, for the most part, uh, <laughs> we, we don't really have, I'll just also say this, we don't have a ton of students eating up Aquinas. So uh, they read and they appreciate it and they move on. We actually haven't had any students who go, wow, I need to like keep going here and mm-hmm. uh, read, read a ton. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but. No, I think, no, I think it's helpful. I think the ecclesial thing, Josh, let me just say this real quick. Yeah. I think the ecclesial, the, the idea of being rooted in an inclusive community, I think that's that's really helpful to think about because I know for me, right, when I came to RBC, I was pretty bent, set on being a Reformed Anglican, right, but there really isn't any in my area. So I've been at a at a um, at a more high church uh, PCA church, probably not too dissimilar from Cornerstone PCA over in Nashville, um, you know, similar high church PCA. And it's made it harder for me to say, I still want to be an Anglican because I've been so rooted in my Presbyterian community, you know? Yeah, um, so I think, I think there's a, there's a truth to that. Uh, Josh. Yeah. So I guess this question kind of segments into two things. Um, so Nathan will be speaking at the Florida regional convivium in a couple months, next month, actually next month. Yeah. Next month. And Jonathan will be there. I will be there. I might drop by too. All right. Jonathan was just telling me about it. So, so yeah, Yeah. we're bringing a squad from RBC. So I guess, and this kind of relates to, so it relates to your relationship with the Davenant Institute, but also relates obviously to your relationship with New College Franklin. I've always been of the conviction, especially reflecting off of my life and now that I'm receiving a theological education, the fact that I was exposed to the liberal <clears throat> arts um, in a distinctly Christian perspective has aided me in understanding theology in general, right? So <clears throat> Um, reading the reformed scholastics obviously it's, it's a hard process but i'm able to understand the language so when uh, when franciscus unius talks about the four causes of theology i'm like uh i'm not really scratching my head because like oh i know that i know aristotle talked about that so can you'll be talking about at the at the florida regional convivium how the liberal arts serve theology mm-hmm. so obviously there's an intersectionality there's a there's a you know not necessarily merging, but there's a close tight-knit relationship with, between theology and philosophy as, you know, the Latin maxim is theology is, you know, the handmaiden of theology, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. So can you talk about how New College Franklin helps theologians, right? So how receiving a liberal arts education will help your understanding of just not understanding of theology, but also doing theology and doing theology, obviously, in an orthodox matter, something that all Christians should want to do. And then if you want, you can talk about your relationship to the Davenant Institute. Great. Okay. I'm so glad that you asked this question, because this is like my beating heart right here. So I, I'll actually, I'll answer this first biographically. So I, uh, I went to uh, Reformed Theological Seminary uh, to get an MDiv uh, to become a pastor, and um, and then at the same time I was teaching at a classical high school, and I realized that I could actually do a lot of really fruitful ministry um, in classical education, and um, and so I switched my degree to get the kind of more academic uh, dual masters, but um, but one of the things that I really became convinced of as I was in seminary, I was with all of these um, just wonderful men who had a heart for the Lord, a great desire to serve the church, but I, they just were not equipped by their previous education, K through 12 in college, to engage with theology on a robust level. And uh, I think that hurt 
their um, didn't just hurt their ability to preach. Um, it hurt it hurt their ability to exegete. I think it hurt their ability even to um, uh, pastor uh, in one-on-one -on -one situations. I think just holistically, um, it, basically they were starting on the wrong foot. And at that point, there's nothing RTS can do, right? Yeah. You're there for three or four years. Um, they need to understand uh, reformed theology as best they can. But what ends up happening, interestingly, is that actually restricts your, um, your curriculum to primarily uh, 19th and 20th century reformed theology. So uh, I didn't hear a word about the reformed scholastics. Um, we barely even read much Calvin. Um, you know, you'd read the confessions because obviously those are important. Um, but for the most part, it's 20th century reformed theology. That's what you're reading in all your classes. And I, at first I was really confused and kind of frustrated. Um, but then I realized that, well, it kind of makes sense because if you do throw these guys into, uh, you know, reading the greats, um, well, they don't have a reservoir um, from which to draw when they're reading them. And they're going to be, uh, like you're saying, pretty lost. So um, I don't even say that as much of a critique on RTS uh, as much as a critique on the education that the vast majority of people are getting before they even get to seminary. And so when I think about what, what do I feel called to and what, what does new college feel called to, ultimately, um, it's not just shaping the individual so that he can know God and love God, but it's shaping churchmen, right? Churchmen, right? People who are fully equipped either to formally do the ministry, you know, as pastors and elders, um, or informally do the ministry um, in the church. And I really do think that... If, if you're going to do that, then you need to uh, read the guys who the guys are reading have read. Yeah. Um, and what ends up happening is there becomes a diluting process when you're reading the guys who have read the guys who have read the guys who have read the guys, right? And that, that ends up pretty much happening. That's, you know, that's 21st century reformed theology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you read most of the, the books that people read now are by authors who they haven't necessarily even read uh, the, the guys, the, yeah. you know, the reformed scholastics or the early reformed guys. They probably even haven't read them, much less the guys that those people were reading. Mm -hmm. and, and the effect of that dilution process um, is, I think, a lot of the, um, the fruit that we're seeing in a lot of reformed evangelical churches uh, is because of that. Um, you yeah. know, obviously you can name certain things like eternal subordination of the sun being an obvious one. Um, but there are, there are others, um, that you just go, man, if they had, yeah. if these people just had read, I know. Sources, this would be never have come up. Yeah. I know. Like when people object to like talking about God and his modes of subsistence, they're like, what does that mean? Like, if I've read the, if I read the Greeks, I know what that means. You know, it's like, so yeah, I think, I think, and, and that's, and that's what all Christians, obviously, especially when pursuing, that's why I think it's, I think it's, it's great to get a liberal arts degree because especially when going into theology, going into, right, the, the science of God, the holy science of, of theology, you're going to be interacting with the whole, a whole different world like these categories and how do you 
And yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that the thing that you point out is like why, you know, especially reformed curriculums are limited. And a lot of marketing is limited to 20th century sources because we're not familiar with the true, the good and the beautiful pre, you know, not to use Machen's name in a pejorative way, but pre-Machen, right? But yeah, it's like, but there's, 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 uh, there's Maastricht, there's the authors of the synopsis, there's Vutius, there's so many, there's so many guys, but you have to read the guys that they read. They were reading, they were reading Thomas, Scotus, you know, Bonaventure. So, yeah. And along with that, I have found then that the emphasis has now turned to biblical theology. So Mm -hmm. uh, systematics, you know, I think, um, and I'm not just saying that because y'all got to reform Reformation Bible College, but I think Sproul was probably the last guy to really popularize reform systematics um, in a way that the layman um, would read. And now like the last 20 years, it's all biblical theology. And in mm-hmm. a sense, I like that. Um, I, I like the tradition that kind of Voss started and that we've, we've kind of done. Um, I like people like Gaffin. I think he's doing a lot of really good work. Um, but, but you, you then get, and obviously we all should just stay off of Twitter, but you, you start, you know, reading these hot takes on Twitter or blogs or in the, you know, reformed evangelical sphere. Um, and there's, they're like questioning all of these long held, ultimately systematic convictions. Um, and they're trying to do biblical theology to, to like answer uh, traditional systematics. Yeah. And, it, and why? It's because they feel really uncomfortable with the systematic categories because they don't have, they don't have that. So just as an example, I won't name names, but there was somebody who was rejecting nature as a category um, when thinking about gender and replacing it with eschatology. Um, bizarre, right? What are you talking yeah, about? <laughs> yeah, that's Aristotelian, right? We don't talk about nature. That's Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. We talk about eschatology because that's biblical. Right. And like, I don't even know, I don't even know where to start at that point in a conversation like that. But, but that's kind of, uh, I think that's what you see yeah. now because people aren't Change equipped. Character. To do this well, and, and I think this affects like, um, like systematic courses at certain <laughs> reform seminaries that I'm also not going to name any names where it seems like a lot of the times systematic classes are just BT classes on the subject. Right. So a biblical theology of God, biblical theology of man, a biblical theology, you know, and that's, that's the, that's the, those the systematic classes. Um, yeah. But so we're, we're coming into time. So I want to start wrapping up here. So if you could, we are a Davenant sponsored podcast. So could you talk about your connection with Davenant, how you came to find, found, find Davenant, you didn't found it. Um, and, 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 and your connection with them. Yeah, um, sure. So years ago when I was at, in Charlotte at seminary, um, a friend of mine said, hey, have you heard of the Davin Institute? And I hadn't. And I kind of looked at what they were doing and I thought that was interesting. And they had a regional convivium. Um, and I had just written my thesis on, uh, my master's thesis on uh, Old Testament sacraments and uh, kind of uh, patristic and reformed um, uh, approaches to taking Old Testament sacraments and how it mapped on to their theology of the Eucharist. Um, and that seemed to be something that would fit into a, a, a Davenant convivium talk. So I submitted yeah. a paper and gave a talk with them. Um, and then things got busy and I didn't actually get to go to one of their summer convivia um, until a couple of years ago. And uh, just 
absolutely loved it. And since then, I've kind of fallen in love with what Davenant's doing. Um, I have, even before I came on faculty at New College, I've been talking to the president of New College about how one of the goals that New College should have, you know, we're a young university, but at some point we should try to create a seminary arm of New College because it is kind of the natural next step. And, you know, um, we want, you know, there just aren't that many uh, uh, primary texts, classically uh, Protestant seminaries out there, or maybe none. Uh, so we should start one, you know, and then, uh, but since I've come to know Davenant, I go, okay, well, this is it. Like, we mm-hmm. actually don't want to start one. Instead, I just need to start funneling my students to Davenant right. after they graduate from New College, because I think there's kind of a natural marriage there. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm becoming more of a proselyte for what Davenant's doing. Um, I think it's obviously creating some waves in certain branches of uh, reformed evangelicalism. And I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're headed in the right direction. So I'm excited to see kind of this stuff that they're going to be continuing to put out. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the fact that um, they are sponsoring y'all's podcast, I think is excellent. Cause I think what y'all are doing um, is really necessary. And there isn't a lot of, this going on in the podcast sphere right now. Um, A lot of pop evangelical or pop reformed uh, stuff, but not a whole lot of um, reformed scholasticism uh, conversations. And when I was looking at, I haven't gotten to listen to all the episodes. When I was looking at the titles, I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. You're like, you're hitting all the, all the things that um, people don't talk about anymore, but they need to. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, Dude, I I can't wait because I'm planning on doing Davenant's the 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 MLET program that's my plan after graduate RBC and it's funny having to tell people that here because you know I'm in Orlando like RTS Orlando is a thing there's RTS professors at my church and they're great and I love them but I'm like man I'm so I'm so bought into this Davenant thing so it's great to hear that um that you because it's great to hear that you think of Davenant as kind of like new new Franklin sorry new college Franklin like seminary you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. continuing y'all's project um because we definitely vibe with that. But thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with us what you're doing at New College. Um, if people want to find out more about New College, um, we will link the the address, uh, the, uh, the 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 URL the URL in uh, in our uh, in our show notes. And we encourage you to go check it out. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank, thank you. Y'all. I really enjoyed this talk. Um, and thank y'all at home for listening to the Ironic Protestant Podcast. Uh, if you could please uh, leave a like or a comment or, uh, and subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a review. It helps people find more people find the podcast uh, and uh, join our recovery of classical Protestantism. Thank you so much for watching.